Great, we're in, uh, we're in Ruth 1. Uh, there's only two books in the Bible that are, are named after women. Ruth is one of them and Esther is the other. So it's a real joy and privilege to be preaching through Ruth. It's a new series for us. Learning from her godly example as a woman of God. Uh, she was a great example of what it means to live life through tough times and to do it well. It was a tough time for the people of Israel. It's a tough time for, for God's people. It was a tough time for Ruth personally and throughout the book in the next four weeks we're going to see some of the main themes that God in his uh, loving kindness works his plans through the life of people. We're going to see Ruth's amazing love and loyalty to her mother-in-law through tough times. We're going to see Boaz, we won't see him this week but in a future week, he's a loving compassionate man who is honourable, he becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer which means he becomes responsible for her care and protection and safety. Throughout the book, we're going to see whispers of the glory of the gospel to come, the inclusion of all people, regardless of ethnicity, in the people of God, because Ruth herself isn't one of the people of God, as it were. She's not ethnically uh, Hebrew. She's not, a, she's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. And we're also going to see this wonderful story of redemption, foreshadowing Jesus's redemptive work on the cross for us. It's a, it's a great book, and I'm really looking forward to us um, going through it. The story of Ruth is set in the book of Judges, um, and that's why it comes in, the, in your Bible straight after the book of Judges. Um, and it says, uh, right at the beginning of the passage in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, in the days when the judges ruled, what were those days like? What was that era like? Well, that era, the era of the judges and the people of Israel's history, was a frightening era of social chaos. Uh, religious chaos. It was a time of disobedience, unrepentance, unfaithfulness amongst the people of God. Israel was constantly being bombarded and attacked by its enemies and Israel's survival was often seemingly threatened and therefore God's purposes to them of becoming a family that uh, blessed the families of the earth seemed unlikely. And Judges tells the story of local military heroes who um, fought against these invaders. And that's the context of uh, Judges. And you get the kind of summary of Judges right at the end, quite a famous line you might have heard before in Judges 21-25. So if you look at Ruth and you just look to the last verse in Judges, it says this in verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what they wanted. It was a time of unrepentant disobedience, living life without love or faithfulness towards God. Just a bit of the history of the people of Israel. They've entered into the promised land and the promise to them was that this land would be a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what Exodus 3.8 says. That's what the land would be like. Um, and the promise came, that promise for that land came with a warning. In Deuteronomy 28 it says this, but if you Uh, will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then, so it's conditional, then, all these curses shall come upon you. He says, curses in the city, in the field, in your basket, in your kneading bowl, in the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, when you come in and when you go out. And it says, "When uh, when Israel didn't follow God faithfully, he then called them back to himself, with reminders of his promises to them. So a couple of chapters later in Deuteronomy, it says this, that return to the Lord, obey his voice. And then, so if you do that, then 
the Lord will restore your fortunes. He'll gather you again from the peoples where your Lord, the Lord your God has scattered you. The Lord will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of the ground, when you obey the voice of the Lord. And so the fruit, the key indicators, if you like, of following God faithfully are gathering in, people being gathered in to the promised land, to that place that God had promised them. The indicators would be social peace, abundance, fullness, fruitful work, children, growing families, livestock, um, fruitful harvests. The key indicators, if you like, the fruit of not following God for the people of Israel at this time, in this book, would be things like people being scattered to places other than Israel, social chaos, conflict, emptiness, fruitless work, um, famine, childlessness, families not kind of not having a family line coming to an end, extinct, if you like. And the, the key questions I want to ask um, this morning are, how do we follow God when life gets tough? How do we make decisions when life gets tough? Who are we in our character? What are we like when life gets tough? Where do we turn to? And these are key questions that these key, the characters in this first chapter of Ruth are going to help us answer. We'll learn what it means to follow God faithfully through tough times. Uh, so here's, uh, let's read together uh, Ruth 1. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, Moab, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went, out, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should spare sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, kind of joyful excitement. And the woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord's brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord's testified against me, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So how do we make decisions when life gets tough? How do we make decisions when life gets tough? Judges tells the story of the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, but the book of Ruth begins with that reflected in the life of this one family. Life is tough in Bethlehem. There's a famine going on. People are fearful for their futures. They're wondering about survival. And Elimelech's decision is kind of practical. On the surface, it seems wise, doesn't it? There's a famine in the land where his family is living, perhaps just being protective of them and decides to leave. But actually, his decision to leave is the opposite of God's plans. He's scattering rather than staying. He's moving out of the promised land rather than living in it. He's moving away from God's people rather than sticking with them. You can kind of think of his decision, if you like, as being quite self-sufficient, not dependent on God, but kind of quite a self-made decision, um, out of perhaps possibly his, his own fears of what the future holds. And there's famine in Bethlehem, um, which is ironic because Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem was meant to be the breadbasket of Israel and it's producing no bread. There's a famine. Its other name is Ephrath. Ephrath means fruitful and it's been completely fruitless. And so they decide to leave God's promised land. A long journey of a week, it's an intentional move away from God's land and God's people. Um, this is the land that was promised to them, the land of freedom, of abundance, of fullness. And they leave God's people for, for Moab. And the Moabites were the enemies of God. They were God's enemies. And that's who they're going to for safety. And not only do they go there, but when they get there, they start to assimilate to the culture and they compromise their own faith in God. Um, in Israelite culture, marrying fellow Israelites was an expression of faithfulness and obedience to God. Um, and God had commanded them not to marry anybody except an Israelite, and yet they marry Moabite wives. And then there's this quite pregnant statement in the passage where it talks about after 10 years. After 10 years, there's no children. Children was the promise that God had given to Abraham, wasn't it? Your children would be as many of the stars. And yet here's a family that has no children after 10 years. After 10 years, you know the story of Sarah and Abraham? Sarah, after 10 years, that's when she introduces Hagar to Abraham in order to force the agenda and have children. And Ishmael 
is born. And so when it says 10 years and there's no children, it's kind of leaning, oh, okay, what, what steps are they going to take? Elimelech and his sons, um, his sons are heirs. Uh, they're the ones to continue the family line, fulfill the promise of multiplication, but they all die. And the passage is quite terse about that, isn't it? just kind of states it matter-of-factly. Elimelech dies. His two sons die. Life had got tough for Elimelech and Naomi and their children. They were sorrowful. And they decided, as many in Israel were, really to not trust God and be faithful to him, but instead um, ignoring his promises to them in their decision-making. The whole passage around Elimelech's decision is really absent, quite noticeably, of God's involvement, isn't it? Their life, if you like, is bearing the fruitful, fruitlessness of life without God. They're being unrepentant, ignoring him. They've essentially taken God out of life's key decisions and not acknowledged him. God's promises to them become unfulfilled and there's an emptiness in the story and in their life. What is uh, Jesus' response when life gets tough? What's Jesus' response when life gets tough? How do we see him making decisions about what to do? Well, at Jesus' toughest moment, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? And in the Garden of Gethsemane, it tells us that um, he's about to be betrayed, as the story goes on, he's about to be betrayed by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, his closest friends are about to kind of leave him uh, to, to his fate, as it were, um, and facing impending unfair arrest and trial and execution, yeah, what does Jesus do in that situation? Well, he says this, my soul is very sorrowful, so my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Whilst Jesus' response when life gets really tough is he goes to his Father. He goes to his Father. That's his instinctive response to tough moments in life, is to go to his Father what else does he do? Well, he desires to be obedient to the Father at great cost to himself. He, he, he knows what the cup involves. It's a cup of suffering. It's a cup of, cup of pain. It's a cup that's going to involve him being crucified on a cross. But obedience to the Father is non-negotiable for him. He falls on his face, obedient to whatever the Father wants. And he says, not as I will, not my plans, but your plans, Father, the things that you have planned for me. What else does Jesus do? He wants to hear from the Father to make the decision. He doesn't want to just kind of make it on his own, kind of his own ideas and his own plans. He wants to hear the Father's voice to him. He's not self-sufficient, but depending on what he hears from him. How do do we make decisions when life gets tough? If we're going to live like Jesus, we want to go to the Father You've got big things coming up in life, big decisions to make, where to move, jobs to get, uh, how to deal with a difficult family situation, how to get on at work, something you've got difficult going on there that you need to work through. Go to the Father. 
Involve him in the decisions that you're making. Make that your instinct. Make obedience a non-negotiable, i.e., whatever the answer is that the Lord is going to give you, make it non-negotiable that you'll obey whatever he says. Which means laying down the numerous possibilities, picking your favourite, and then asking God if it can be that one. Uh, it, could be, it could be this, 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 or mm, that. Could it be one of the... No, non-negotiable. I'll obey you, Lord. Whichever of these it is, even if it's my least favourite option. Go as you will, full of faith, trusting in God's will and plans and promises for you. Not making self-sufficient, self-made solutions, practical decisions, but dependent on God, faith-filled for what's ahead. Uh, Second thing to look at is, who are we when life gets tough? In the passage we see Naomi, Ruth and Orpah, they're travelling now to Bethlehem. Life's got very hard for them. Um, They're three widows, they're vulnerable They've got no protection in that culture of fathers or husbands, so they're in, a very, in that culture in a very vulnerable position. Poverty and the threat of sexual assault are very real for them. Orpah and Ruth are going to experience life as foreigners, treated as outsiders when they get there. But who is Naomi when life gets tough? Well, Naomi's bitter, isn't she? She even names herself bitter towards the end of the passage, don't call me that, call me bitter. I'm bitter about what God has done to her and the situations and circumstances she's living through. In her deepest need, she vehemently rejects the help of others, doesn't she? She's, she? And it seems like she might have perhaps done it on purpose on the road. Maybe it would have been easier to persuade Naomi to stay in Moab had she had the conversation at home, but she has it halfway down the road and then stops and turns to her daughters-in-law and says go back, trying to make it very difficult for them to resist um, what she's asking them to do. And so Orpah returns to her people and her gods in Moab to remarry and have children. We wonder, why did Naomi, in her moment of greatest need, when life was its toughest for her, reject the help of uh, Ruth and Orpah? Why did she reject their help? Why did she distance herself from them? Perhaps, the passage doesn't tell us, but perhaps it was she was too proud to receive the help of others. Perhaps it was kind of with good intentions, not wanting to involve other people in her mess, the pain, the bitterness, the grief that she was experiencing, not wanting people to have to deal with that, not being a burden to others. Perhaps it was just she felt just completely overwhelmed, just want to be alone, don't want to be around any others. But Naomi, whilst rejecting help, also does something quite wonderful. She's very vulnerable, real, open and honest with Ruth and Orpah, isn't she? She's honest about the bitterness she feels, the resentment, the pain, the hurt, the grief that she's going through. She's very real with them about it. There's something raw about their bond together. They've all lost their husbands, but a beautiful relationship between the three of them has been built to the point where Naomi can be this honest with them. It's really quite a touching moment in the story. And there's that passage, isn't it, that says, a weep with those who weep. And Orpah and Ruth's response is to weep and cry aloud. 
really enter into Naomi's pain with her. They're alongside her in it. There's a beautiful bond between them. And when they land in Bethlehem, Naomi tells them, call me Mara, bitter, not Naomi, pleasant. What, what Naomi's doing is she's identifying herself through her circumstances and not identifying herself with God. She's identifying herself with the pain and the hurt of her circumstances rather than her true God-given name. She describes herself as empty because in essence she's seeing herself through her pain. She's lost hope for the future. That's who Naomi is and when life gets tough. What about Ruth? What's Ruth like when life gets tough? Who is she? She is a, an incredible example of loyalty, isn't she? I mean, that statement, you know, wherever you go, I'll go. Uh, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. I'll even be buried where you are. Yeah? Just, just a wonderful expression of loyalty to her mother-in-law, her emotional mother-in-law. If you read the passage, this is her mother-in-law. I don't know what your experience of relationships with mothers-in-law, but they can be notoriously difficult, can't they? And if you read the passage, she's being explosively emotional. I don't know if you've ever, you know, if you, it's, it's almost like a caricature of a mother-in-law relationship, isn't it? And yet Ruth is not at a distance from her. She draws near to her. She's incredibly loyal. And she's physic, she physically expresses her loyalty. It says she clung to her. She didn't let her move. She hugged her, held her, was with her. She physically expressed her loyalty um, to her. And bear in mind, Ruth's in a similar position. In fact, Ruth, uh, Naomi's getting to go home. Ruth isn't. Ruth has lost her husband as well. Ruth is also, she's widowed. She's poor. She's, you know, life looks like she's going to be an outsider, excluded. She's walking into a people who look at her as the enemy, who look down on her. It would have been difficult for her to remarry. She'd have been in an unfamiliar place, culture, life, no security of parents, home or husband, no family land to inherit, financially insecure. Naomi hasn't really got anything to offer her on that basis, but she's loyal to her, nevertheless. Why is she? Well, the God of Naomi has captured Ruth's attention has captured Ruth's attention and has brought her strength and courage. Your God will be my God. That's where her attention is and that's where her strength and courage to be loyal to Naomi, all against all the odds, comes from. She resists Naomi's rejection. She's loyal, chooses to stay with her because she identifies herself, not with the pain of her circumstance, she identifies her, herself with God. Yeah? Do you hear that? In her, her statement, her core identity... Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. My identity is not that I'm widowed, poor, etc. My identity is your God is my God. And that's where her strength and courage comes from. And she claims her emotional mother-in-law as her adoptive mother. It's a stunning moment in the story. Just stunning. Ruth's identity is with God. And it says... um. You know, in Proverbs 31, 25, it talks about the virtuous woman. And it says in verse 25, this strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come, which means she looks to the future with hope. Ruth is exactly that kind of woman, isn't she? 
that virtuous woman looking to the future with her hope. She laughs at the times to come. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and so she's able to be with Naomi and be loyal to her, alongside her, even in her own pain and grief and loss. Who is Jesus when, he, when life gets tough for him in Gethsemane? Well, Jesus is one who doesn't distance himself from his friends. He's one who draws his closest friends to him. He goes with the 12 disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And then he asks James, Peter and John, who are his three closest friends, to go further with him and to pray with him. Stay here, remain and watch with me while I pray. Jesus is one who draws closest to his friends. You kind of think, like Jesus, the son of God, he could probably, you know, fairly capable man. But no, he, he wants his friends nearby. That's, that's in life's toughest moments, he surrounds himself with others. Just like Ruth clings to those nearest to her, he clings to those who are nearest to him. And like Naomi, uh, Jesus is real and honest and open and vulnerable with his disciples about the deep sorrow he's experienced. He says, I'm, sorrow, I'm sorrowful even to death. I'm sorrowful even to death. That's pretty raw, isn't it? He's being so honest with them about his emotions and his pain the difficulty he's going through. And like Ruth, through his arrest, trial and crucifixion, Jesus is able to show great strength and courage. He shows loyalty to his father. When life's at its toughest, he was strong and courageous for the benefit of others. Like Ruth, he endures the pain of the cross for the benefit, as we were saying earlier this morning, of forgiving us of our sins. At his toughest moment, He is most thinking of others and having the strength and courage to give out to us who have trusted in him and his death in our place for our sins and in his resurrection to life so that we would have hope too. So who are we when life gets... Who are you when life gets tough? Like deep down when life gets tough, what is your character like? Do you receive the help of others? Do you, or do you kind of distance yourself from others? When life gets really tough, do you turn to a friend's, nearest friends to pray with you and say, this is how I'm really feeling. Would you watch with me and pray with me? Or do you distance yourself from others? It's good to have relationships in church life, isn't it? Where you can cry ugly tears. You know, this is ugly tears in this passage. Real pain and hurt. It's good to have those relationships where we can be open and honest, go the final 10% as it were, tell friends how we're really feeling, knowing that they'll respond without judgment, but being supportive and loving and caring, that they'll cry with us and be loyal to us. I wonder as well, how do you identify in those moments? Do you identify yourself primarily with God and his promises to you which are good? Or do you identify yourself with your circumstances? The key to working that out is this. If you identify yourself with your circumstances, you're constantly up and down emotionally with the waves. Now, that's not to mean that we won't feel emotion, but it's just life is like this constantly because that's how your circumstances go, isn't it? We all have seasons that are great. We all have seasons that are incredibly painful. And if you identify yourself with your circumstances and how well life is going for you, in the moments when life is going great, woohoo, I'm on a high. Hey, God's been so good to me, it's wonderful. In the really tough moments, you know, this 
It's not that we don't feel the pain, but when you identify yourself with God, you stand on the truth of his promises and his goodness towards you. You don't, you're not riding on the waves of how life is turning out for you. So what are you like when life gets tough? Are we like Ruth, identifying with God, living with hope in him, being strong and courageous for the benefit of others? If we identify ourselves with God in that way, even when life is at its toughest and we need the help of others, like Ruth does, she needs Orpah and Naomi. She's with them, she's got a wonderful bond with them, but she's also at the same time still able to be strong and courageous for Naomi. And the third one is this. Where do we go when life gets tough? Naomi knows life gets tough, that she really needs to return to Bethlehem. This is kind of, if you like, in the story, a a moment of repentance, of realising, no, I need God. I need to be amongst his people. I need to be in the promised land. And she turns to go to Bethlehem, to her God, to the promised land, to her people. And it says in verse 19, when she's back in Bethlehem, they're stirred. There's an excitable recognition that Naomi is back. I wonder how she felt in that moment, going back to her hometown after decades. She's left full, but she's returned empty. She's bitter. Perhaps she's embarrassed. She's returning a widow when she had a husband and sons who've all died. She's vulnerable to poverty, to exploitation. She's probably subject to the town's gossip. Perhaps there's some shame involved in the situation. Ruth, when life gets tough, clings to Naomi. She wants to be with God's people, with family, determined that Naomi's God will be her God, and she goes to the promised land too. Where does Jesus go when life gets tough? Well, he goes both to the Father and to his closest friends. And in that passage in Gethsemane, he does it three times, doesn't he? He goes off with Peter, James and John. He says, wait here and pray with me and watch. And he goes off a little bit further and prays. And then he comes back to them and they're sleeping, aren't they? And he says, no, come on, watch with me. And he goes off and he prays again. He comes back and they're asleep and he thinks, oh, well, never mind. He goes off and prays again. But he's constantly in that place of where does he go? He goes to the Father and he goes to his people. So where do you turn when life gets tough? When, when the feelings that come along with your circumstances, um, how do you handle those? What, you know, when you're wondering what will people think? How will they respond to me? if you're wondering whether people are gossiping about you, if you're feeling shame or embarrassment, if you're feeling vulnerable or overwhelmed, where do you go? Because it's very easy in those moments to put yourself at a distance from others, isn't it? And what the passage teaches us is that's a dangerous thing to do, that we're to come to God and his people. That's where we need to be, set our sights on the hope and the future that he has for us. Uh, There's two more, but they're shorter ones. Who can come to God when life gets tough? The big theme of uh, this book is going to be that Ruth is a Moabite. She's part of the the enemy of God, as it were, and and God's people. She's a pagan who worshipped a god called Chemosh. She was a poor foreign widow, childless and unable to conceive, and yet she's included in the people of God. I mean, it's wonderful, because at that time, the people of God were ethnic Hebrews, Israelites, They were the people of God, God's special treasured possession, his people, they belong to him. And she's a Moabite from the enemy. She's not even an impressive one either. And yet, she's one included in the family of God. Not only is she included in the family of God, but when you get to the end of the story, we're going to find out, here's the spoiler, 
is that she is the great-great-grandmother of King David, who becomes the greatest king in Israel's history. And if you go even further down her family line, who is in her family line? Jesus, the King of Kings. The King of Kings is part of her family. It's this wonderful inclusion. Who can, um, who can be, who, or who can come to God when life gets tough? It's anyone. It doesn't matter what your background is, whether you're seen as an outsider. You can come to God in your greatest times of need. And the final one is this. What is the outcome when life is tough? Well, the passage, just read the, the difficulty with Old Testament narrative is the author doesn't tell you everything that he's trying to say. He's making it, making it subtly through the narrative. But if you look at the narrative, this is happening. Having begun with scattering, the family leaving, and there's a famine, there's emptiness, and there's fruitlessness. In verse 22, what's the situation? They've been gathered in, back to Bethlehem, into um, the promised land. It's harvest time. There's fullness of food, and there's fruitfulness. The tone of chapter 1 has moved from hopelessness to full of hope for the future. Just remembering Deuteronomy 30, return to the Lord, obey his voice, and then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. That sounds like that's what's starting to happen, doesn't it, as they've returned to God. Gather you again from all the peoples from Moab, where the Lord has scattered you. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb. They're childless at the minute, but this is the promise of God in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the passage kind of ends with this pensive, what will the future look like for Naomi and Ruth? Will God's promises to his people and to them be fulfilled in their life? And so what will the future hold for us? In In life's toughest moments, the future looks bleak, doesn't it? You cannot see a way out It looks gloomy. There's little hope. But if we follow God, will we trust that his promises for us will be fulfilled, even in our toughest times, when it looks like they're far from coming to pass? Um, Julian uh, and Andrew, if you want to come up, we'll we'll go into worship in a moment. Should we just still ourselves before the Lord and we'll just um, see what he wants to say to some of us this morning? Come and speak to us, Lord, we pray. Just come and meet with us now as we uh, respond to your word and respond to what you've been saying through this passage. Come and speak to us, we pray. Uh, I think there'll be some of us here who are seeing Naomi's response to Orpah and Ruth and thinking, as she's bitter and resentful, she thinks the Lord is against her. Um, but she does have something wonderful. She's got good friends around her. She's got daughters-in-law who are loyal to her, who care for her, who weep with her. She's able to be raw and real and honest with them. I just felt there'd be some of us who um, maybe feel a little bit of grief at the minute that we don't have those kind of friendships. If there were 
is, is there somebody in your life who you would call a, a friend in that way? You can tell them literally everything. The last 10% that's painful, hurt, make yourself vulnerable to their judgment, make yourself vulnerable to their rejection or criticism. I think some of us probably feel that quite heavily. So I just want to pray, Lord, those are the friendships that we long for. Whether it's our circumstances, perhaps it's something in us that just puts people at a distance. We pray if there is anything in us that holds people at arm's length, we pray you'd help us break it down, to deal with it, put it to the side so that we can have those kind of friendships. Our Lord, we, we need you needed those kind of friends at your toughest moment. How much more do we? So we pray, Lord, would you provide for those of us who feel like we don't have those friendships. We pray, Lord, would you help us to find them and give us the resilience and the courage and the strength to establish those kind of friendships with one another.